Hello, everyone. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. From Marcus Lopez, I'm your host, Larry Smith. Today on American Indian Airwaves, protecting Bristol Bay in Alaska from the mammoth-sized pebble mine project that, if constructed, will destroy indigenous people's traditional homelands, the largest source of sackeye salmon on Mother Earth, and create irreparable harm to the planet in animal relations. That and Urban Indigenous Los Angeles, an in-depth interview with a longtime Indigenous female activist, spoonkeeper, and life giver who recounts her experiences and contributions to Urban Indigenous Los Angeles. All that and more here on American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines bright, the lone In the first segment of today's program, we go to the state of Alaska as we speak with Dolores Larson, Deputy Director of the United Tribes of Bristol Bay, based out of Dillingham, Alaska. The United Tribes of Bristol Bay is an indigenous consortium of 15 federally recognized indigenous nations throughout the region, roughly the size of the state of Ohio. They continue working to protect their traditional territories and ways of life from the Canadian-based Northern Dynamics proposed Pebble Mine Project. The pebble deposit contains some of the largest volumes of undeveloped copper, gold, silver, and other rare minerals throughout the world, and the struggle to protect Bristol Bay from the mining industry has lasted more than two decades. Presently, Northern Dynamic is awaiting the decision by the United States Environmental Protection Agency to determine under the Clean Water Act, Section 404C, whether the Bristol Bay watershed area should be protected. In May of 2022, the Environmental Protection Agency opened up public comments regarding the public mine project in which more than a half a million people commented in support of protecting Bristol Bay from the Pebble Mine. So far, nearly more than 4 million people have voiced opposition to the Pebble Mine project and the EPA agency is expected to make its decision at the end of 2022. Dolores Larson, Deputy Director of the United Tribes of Bristol Bay, explains how critical the situation is for indigenous nations throughout the regions in their traditional ways of life, the large concentration of sockeye salmon at risk, the potential harm the commercial industry will suffer, and the support of allies throughout the region. This is Dolores Larson on Protecting Bristol Bay. Right now, we are in a pivotal moment in this where we are urging the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, to act now 
and finished the job of protecting Bristol Bay from the looming threat of pebble, hopefully by the end of this year. We just wrapped up the comment period on the EPA revised proposed determination, and the EPA has set a deadline for December 2nd to make a decision on the on that determination. And they can either make a final determination or withdraw the, the determination altogether. And obviously, we're hoping they'll finalize, finalize the determination as soon as possible. Um, so I was just going to add that um, within this coming period, we heard from over 2,500 residents in Bristol Bay opposing Pebble and over 26,000 Alaskans Mm -hmm. in support of EPA protections. And like you said, um, over half a million, more closely to 600,000, you know, Americans opposing Pebble and supporting EPA protections for Bristol Bay. Dolores, the struggle over Bristol Bay has been going on for more than 15 years now, and we've covered this uh, during that time. But uh, for our listeners, uh, can you give us an overview of the Pebble Project and who are uh, the corporations or the corporation that is responsible behind the Pebble Mine Project as we speak? Okay. The Pebble Limited Partnership and its sole owner, Northern Dynasty Minerals, are proposing to build a, a very huge gold, copper, and molybdenum mine at the headwaters of Bristol Bay in southwest Alaska. And that would be located at the headwaters of the Nushigak and Quijak River drainages, which is also home to the largest wild salmon fishery remaining on Earth. And if fully developed, the pebble mine would produce more than 10 billion tons of toxic waste that would need to be stored and treated in perpetuity at, you know, at the headwaters of our watershed and therefore would threaten to destroy the lands, the waters, our biodiversity and everything that it sustains in our region. Uh, the Northern, Northern Dynasty Minerals is, it's, still remains the sole owner of the Pebble Limited Partnership, and four major investors have already walked away from the project. Mm. Uh, Mitsubishi Corporation left in 2011, Anglo-American left in 2013. They invested over $600 million into the project, and they walked away from it. Uh, Rio Tinto left in 2014, donating uh, its shares in its Northern Dynasty shares to, to two Alaskan nonprofits. And then the latest um, investor that walked away in 2018 was the first Quantum Minerals. And so that just leaves Northern Dynasty Minerals. Thank you for sharing that. And then because of the legacy of the permitting process and certainly i think for a lot of indigenous nations the trump administration and their quote-unquote reworking of 
of regulations um, you know, at the federal level, uh, to put it politely, has complicated things. So I was wondering maybe we, you know, talk, when we talk about this, this process, um, you know, with the EPA and its final determination uh, regarding uh, Section 404C, and maybe you could uh, speak about that in relationship to the Clean Water Act and, and why this ruling is, uh, is such a crucial ruling compared to any time in the past. Sure. This is where it kind of gets a little complicated. That's all right. <laughs> um, you know, just because just we've been dealing with this issue for the past 20 years. And so um, in 2014, when the EPA first proposed these protections under the under the under Section 44C of the Clean Water Act, it was based on a hypothetical mine plan. Mm. And since then, uh, PLP, or Pebble Limited Partnership, has put forth a 404 permit application to the Army Corps, and we went through the NEPA process for that application. Ultimately, Pebble's permit was denied in, gosh, the years are just, a blur, but I think it was November 2020. And so, you know, Pebble's permit was denied then. And of course, they immediately appealed the decision. And right now that that appeal is went back to the um, Army Corps, the Pacific Ocean Division, I believe. Thank you, Dolores. Um, I was wondering, can you give our listeners a sense of what home is and uh, and considering that the United Tribes of Bristol Bay represents 15 different indigenous nations that roughly make up the size of the state of Ohio. So for our listeners, can you give us a sense of what home is and, and why this struggle is so important in protecting uh, indigenous people's traditional homelands? Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll state the obvious and maybe go into a little bit more detail on a um, tribal or, you know, resident perspective. But obviously, uh, Bristol Bay is home to record-shattering salmon runs that provide more than 60% of the world's sockeye salmon and support billions in economic output and employ tens of thousands of people in the commercial fishing, hunting, sport fishing, outdoor recreation, and tourism. And like on, I guess, um, a more regional level, Bristol Bay is home to, you know, the, the two largest major river systems, and it supports all our fish and wildlife. Everything that we live off of, like you know, we still live off the land here mm. in our home. I mean, you know, we are salmon people. If if it was, if Pebble was built, we would cease to be. We would cease to exist as salmon people of of these lands and waters. It's our livelihood. Mm. Um, all of that would be put at risk if Pebble was built. There's no way salmon and this mine can coexist. I can go on, I, but you know, it's um, a, it's whatever you want to share because I know I know it's um, you know, it's a hard question, right? Because uh, 
you, not not myself or, or anybody that's not from up there, that didn't grow up there, we don't understand what the outcome could be for yourself and in, in commu- different communities and nations if this project was to happen. And so I'm, I apologize if it's a hard, sensitive question. And so whatever you're willing to share in answering that question, I'm more than happy with your response. Mm-hmm. I'd just like to share that, you know, when we were going through the NEPA permitting process, um, Pebble came, became closer to a reality than ever before. And during that time, we were, we feared mm-hmm. for our future, we, you know, we, we were, we were scared. I was on a daily basis that, you know, this, this could become a reality. Pebble can get their permits and that they're going to be mining. Thankfully, that didn't happen. But a permit denial does nothing to stop Pebble from reapplying in the future, which is why we need these protections put in place. We never have to live with the threat ever again. Dolores, you mentioned earlier that Bristol Bay is home to 60% of the world's sockeye salmon. And that makes me think of just the long legacy of commercial fishing in that region and, and, um, you know, in the oceans and, and the waterways. And I was wondering, what role does the commercial fishing industry play when we're talking about this proposed pebblebine project? Mm-hmm. I don't think our commercial fishing industry harms our people, you know, in any way, mm-hmm. uh, shape, or form. I, it actually um, benefits us or benefits our economy and not only our, you know, residents, but the state of Alaska, the Pacific Northwest, all depend on our fishery, you know, for their jobs, their livelihoods. So I, I, I don't believe that, you know, our commercial fish, fishery would harm us in any way mm-hmm. or, make the, or make the pebble mine favorable, more favorable, I guess. And we want to remind listeners, you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Dolores Larson, Deputy Director of the United Tribes of Bristol Bay, based out of Dillingham, Alaska. She's speaking on the importance in protecting over 15 Indigenous nations' traditional homelands from the Pebble Mine Project, if constructed, would not only harm and wound Mother Earth and Indigenous people's traditional ways of life, but also place at risk over 60% of the world's sockeye salmon within the Bristol Bay region, roughly the size of the state of Ohio. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves, and now back to the interview. Thank, thank you for that, because so many of us right, don't know that the history up there and in, in home and uh, or the number of different indigenous nations and communities that are there and what industries have affected uh, uh, communities and the land and the waters uh, right over the decades and, and generations. So, you know, things that for a lot of people, right, when things happen today, we don't always think about, 
you know, the past and what's happened in the past and how what is being proposed today actually is of greater harm when you take into consideration uh, the history. So the, I'd just like to say that the region has never been more united than they are before, than they are now. Hmm. Our commercial fishermen, our businesses, and our tribes, our people, all want the EPA to strengthen its proposal in order to fully protect Bristol Bay hmm. and to finish the job of vetoing pebble mine, you know, as soon as possible. Thank you, Dolores, for for that response. And, uh, you know, with the change of the administrations, right, from the Trump administration to the Biden administration, what we all tend to see with the administrations is a reinterpretation of pre-existing policies or just a flat-out change in policies. So I was wondering just, you know, based on your experience uh, right now with the Biden administration, um, what are you seeing in terms of regulatory changes, if any, and then also, um, you know, agency roles. We've been talking about the Environmental Protection Agency and the Army Corps of Engineers, but certainly um, uh, I'm sure a lot of listeners are curious about the Department of Interior. So uh, what are you seeing at this point? Mm-hmm. President Biden, during his campaign, he, he made a commitment to protect Bristol Bay and Stop Pebble, um, you know, when he was in the Obama, uh, Obama-Biden administration. He worked on the 2014 Bristol Bay Watershed Assessment, and now the president's protection of three national monuments is, is among a series of steps the administration has taken to store protections to some of America's most cherished lands and waters, many of which are sacred to tribal nations. The administration has so far halted leasing in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and has committed to restoring protections for the Tongass National Forest Mm -hmm. under the roadless rule, and now he has reinitiated the process to pr- protect Bristol Bay and the wor- our world ca- world-class salmon fishery and everything it supports uh, through these uh, EPA 44C protections of the Clean Water Act. Mm. But we have yet to see action taken under the EPA Clean Water Act. Um, as for Dep- Department of Interior Secretary uh, Deb Holland, Mm-hmm. She has not formally taken a stance on, on Pebble yet. Mm. Hello, thank you for that. And as we uh, wrap up um, our interview, for our listeners, uh, could you tell us a, a little bit uh, more about the United Tribes of Bristol Bay and what can people do to help stop the Pebble Project and protect the Bristol Bay Area and Indigenous peoples' uh, traditional uh, ways of life and protect Mother Earth throughout the region. United Tribes of Bristol Bay is a, a regional tribal consortium consisting of 15 member tribes within the Bristol Bay region, and we represent about 80% of the population of Bristol Bay. 
uh, we, our main mission is to protect our traditional, protect our Yupik Dina and our Alutic traditional ways of life mm-hmm. in the Bristol Bay region, particularly from large-scale development projects like the Pebble Mine. And we just, you know, continue to ask our supporters to make their voices heard and continue to push the EPA to finalize th- this action by the, as soon as possible and sharing the message, you know, on social media platforms um, certainly helps uh, raise this issue and keep it, keep the fight going, basically. <laughs> mm. Oh, thank you for that. And where can listeners go um, to get more information about the work of the United Tribes of Bristol Bay? Is there a, a website or social media sites, uh, any kind of information you would like to share with listeners? Sure. We have a website, um, www.utbb.org. Uh, we are also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And that was Dolores Larson, Deputy Director of the United Tribes of Bristol Bay, based out of Dillingham, Alaska. The United Tribes of Bristol Bay is comprised of 15 indigenous nations throughout the region, collectively working with allies to stop the Pebble Mine Project. The Pebble Mine Project, if approved by the Environmental Protection Agency, would result in not only the mining of rare minerals, copper, gold, silver, plus more, but it would destroy the traditional ways of life of indigenous peoples throughout the region and jeopardize and harm 60% of the world's sockeye salmon and harm the commercial fishing industry throughout the region. For more information, again, on the United Tribes of Bristol Bay and what you can do to support, you can visit the website at www.utbb.org. In the next segment of our program today here on American Indian Airwaves, we continue with our ongoing series, Urban Indigenous Los Angeles. Los Angeles County has the largest population of urban indigenous peoples compared to any other county throughout the United States. The urban indigenous Los Angeles population plays a very important role for indigenous peoples intergenerationally maintaining a sense of community, culture, and life. Today on American Indian Airwaves, co-host and executive producer Marcus Lopez has the honor and pleasure to speak with longtime indigenous activist, spoonkeeper, life giver, and so much more, Helen Herrera. Now, Urban Indigenous Los Angeles with Marcus Lopez and Helen Herrera. Thank you, Helen, for joining us on American Indian Airwaves. You are not only an outstanding leader within our community, uh, but you're a great, great grandmother. And that in itself goes beyond any PhDs or any degrees you can have. So I want to congratulate you on your family and your well-being. Now, on this series here in American United Ways, we want to talk about Los Angeles history because a lot of people don't know about Los Angeles, especially through the 80s and 90s 
and especially during the turbulent years of Los Angeles that you were living there. Now, give us a brief little outline, Helen Herrera, on your background. Um, Where did you come from? How did you uh, get to Los Angeles? Well, I'm born and raised, third generation, forcibly removed on the fourth floor of a tenement house on Damon Avenue in Ohio. Damon used to be known as Roby. But anyway, I got my instinct to want to return to the people unknowingly when winds and tornadoes would enter the fourth floor room where us kids were and spin around and we'd be screaming and my folks would say, what is it? We didn't know there was no one to guide us and give us direction. Many years later, I'd find out what that was. But from there, I went to an all white grade school for the first year, eight years of my life. I was surrounded by Italians, Ukrainians, Polish, Czechoslovakian, Sicilian. There weren't many of us people there, but uh, the day came to graduate and they came and told me that I was on the wrong side of the street. So I'd have to go to an all black high school, travel through, through Lake Street all the way to the freeway to get to my new high school. Didn't matter to me. I went. That was uh, uh, 50, uh, I'm sorry, not the 50s. I'd be a baby at 64, 65. But it was the year of the Black Power Movement. Now, then, Helen, this is this is the city of Chicago, right? This is Chicago. This is Chicago. And so uh, during my sophomore year, everyone was riding and walking out and everything was a mess. And I'd run down to catch my bus and I saw a storefront being put together. And I'd peer through the window. And then after a couple of months, I saw it was the Black Panther headquarters, but it was a beautiful community center where kids were in there learning and people were in there. It was great. My junior year, I went back and it was full of bullet holes, riddled with bullet holes and burned out. People thought the people were learning too much. I don't know what, but it was a nightmare. There were National Guard everywhere, not just for a day, every day, every day. Armed National Guard. This is what I faced walking back and forth to my high school. And then one day after I, I got out of that, I was working at the phone company. And I was so tired of seeing so much violence, family violence, community violence, weather violence. I called and I said, I'm leaving today. They said, where are you going? I said, I don't know, California. They said, well, you can't go because you're a single mom and we're going to take care of you. That was my telephone operators at my bell. I said, oh, no, I'm leaving. I'm gone. By the end of the day, I boarded a plane with $100 left in my pocket and two shopping bags. I'd never been on a plane, never had a suitcase, and my baby in my arm. I arrived here, but before I climbed on this plane, a friend of mine tucked a piece of paper in my pocket. She said, when you get there, you call this woman. She's a good woman. I said, okay. So here I am arriving at three in the morning and I walk over and pull off my winter boots and throw them in the trash. I'm never going to wear boots again. And I remember the paper. So I pull it out of my pocket and dial this number. And this woman says, I heard about you. I want you to come right to my house on Lemon Grove and Santa Monica Boulevard. So here I go in a taxi from LAX. I look up the, the stairwell and there's this huge, beautiful, hillbilly woman must have been about 50 years old with three falls on her head, dripping with gold and jewelry. Get up here, she's telling me. Get in that bed and rest with your daughter. And when I woke up that morning, 
LA had opened up to me like a flower. I had a little two bedroom bungalow. I had a job with uh, Pacific Telephone, which I threw away to be a waitress. Why not? That was a head waitress of many coffee shops I'd met. And we became famous friends for the rest of her life because she helped me so much. But then I would travel back and forth because I was still cooking. People would call me to cook. And when I came home, I'd come home to Ruthie's house and she'd quiz me what happened, this and that. So she had all my stories in there. And then I'd go so-called home. But we were always very close to each other. Anyway, so here I go. There's a bunch of stuff happening and I'm involved in it with Four Directions and other people. And I give my four-year commitment and finish that up no matter what people throw at me. When I have a commitment, I finish it. So I finished that up and I swore I'd never be involved in the Indian movement again. Moved to Yale Street in Santa Monica. And then here comes the war. Here comes everything. People going off to fight again. And I couldn't stay silent. So I rode my bike up to the federal building one day because I heard there was a big protest. And when I looked through the crowd, I saw feathers. And I said, oh, I know feathers. So I cut through the crowd and I came face to face with Jesse Garcia. But in my mind, I said, oh, she's here. Ernie's here. So I split and I found him and he's Alan. And I'm like, Ernie, because, you know, fights are fights, but we try to not to involve all the family in the community. So anyway, I go over to the corner because they're saying, everybody get ready. We're going to march through Westwood. I'm like, I'm marching through Westwood. So I go to the corner of Federal and Wilshire and I'm standing there and I see these white supremacists across the street, the other side of Wilshire. And these guys are screaming at this one guy. They're revving him up to come and jam the crowd and do some damage. And so I walk over and stand in front of a fire hydrant. But I got my eyes on these folks and they're coming. They're coming. It's a huge treat, but they're coming. And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with longtime indigenous activist, spoonkeeper, and so much more, Helen Herrera, as part of our ongoing series, Urban Indigenous Los Angeles. And now back to the interview. And I hear this noise and I turn around and look and I see these five handsome Indian men carrying a big banner that says Indians against the war. And at my heart said, Yes, that's right. We're here. And next thing I know, this young man, uh, uh, he came over and gave me a piece of paper and said, hey, call us. We want to talk to you. I said, "Okay, fine. So I turned my head back to what was happening. And sure enough, here they come. And this guy leaps up in the air and jumps. And I moved aside and his foot hit the fire hydrant. And he cartwheeled two rows behind you guys into the crowd. The crowd opened like the Red Sea. And that's the last I saw was him screaming and holding his leg. I hopped on my bike and got out of it. So that's the first time I met Jews. Anyhow. Now, now Helen, ahead. that yeah. was your first introduction in the movement, you might say. The LA. LA. Now, why don't you talk a little bit about, <clears throat> you mentioned a couple of names. And Ernie Peters, um, now he goes by the name of Long Walker. And that's the story in the South. Right. Uh, what about what was LA like that there in that time? And then you were associated with uh, Ernie and other people. Talk about that for us. Okay. Uh, I had been listening to American Indian Airways for quite some time. And uh, then they, uh, Four Directions went on and they were doing a couple of interviews. And I noted that he had the vision 
to uh, renew the sweat lodge to the people who weren't familiar with it anymore. And I said, hey, you know, I could go to college for four years for that. So after a series of things, we made contact. We met people who knew them also. So we made contact <coughs> and we went. And I said, oh, I'm going to have to know what I'm doing. I cannot just go in a sweat lodge or go in any ceremony unless people explain what they're doing. Everybody kind of laughed. Ah, no one asks questions. You don't ask questions. Well, guess what? I did, you know, and they were wonderful. I mean, at that time, they were wonderful and they were very happy to educate us and tell us what was going on and what was what and how we placed ourselves and what we did. Every step of being in that lot to the point where after a few years, Ernie was sending people to my door knocking with tobacco. Oh, Ernie says I can't sweat with him unless you do a class with me. I'm like, what? No. Uh, you know, I, I don't do this. I'm a cook. But uh, evidently, like, like him and Sundance, they were always volunteering me to do this and that, you know. But anyway, so I went along with it, finished my time there. There was quite a few things happening. You know, there's always someone who wants to be the next Che Guevara. And they will go through all the steps it takes to try to turn us into martyrs and hurt our families to do it. There was only one person in that organization who did that, but everybody loved Ernie. So they just tried to be around him and be with him and support his renewal of the lodge. He was Mr. Sweat Lodge. He knew it and he was solid with it all, you know? Yeah, that's, that was his background as far as he's still, as far as still alive and up with the Red Wing, but yet he, his, his, um, cultural experience and his understanding of that Lakota ways was um, second to none. Now, you mentioned Four Directions. Uh, talk about that for a second. Four Directions of what? Was that an organization? And where yeah. was that located at? And what was your focus on the Four Directions? Well, the Four Directions was mainly located in Whittier and different areas wherever they could put up a sweat lodge. We had Rosie up in, in the hills, you know, I mean, there were different people involved, but it was mainly a solid Chicano group still related to their indigenous roots and wanted to do support. We're trying to get back to what was real. How do you use your spirit to make contact with nature again and try to support it for everybody, not just one person or one race? You know, this is what I understand over my years. The task was given to us, us beautiful cinnamon brown people. You know, this is our land, this is our water, this is our, take care of it. Do what you need to do, pray however you need to do to make it happen. So that was four directions. And there were things happening in there. They say, you never talk about the sweat lodge. Sorry, I do. So there were things happening in there that told me that we were making good connections with nature again. And I wanted to with each other, our sweat lodge brothers and sisters, you know, that we were using our minds and our hearts and our spirits to try to make something good happen for all of us. And, you know, it's not till 10, 20 years later when people start talking, you realize they didn't get it, you know, but that's okay too. Some of us did, because as Ernie said, it only takes one person to get it. And then everybody else could come along. And he, he would be saying, come on, you know, everybody, don't you want this kind of strength? 
don't you want this kind of, you know, because I looked at them all as sweat lodge brothers. We're in the same womb. The earth was our mother. After four years, are you not brothers and sisters? Do you not behave in that manner? No matter what political or outrageous nonsense comes up, do you partake of that or value what you build? You know, people would be in there, oh, it's too hot, open the door. And, and they would always tell me, you could always leave if you want. You could always open the door. I didn't have to, because at the moment I'd hear everybody screaming, I'd feel beautiful, cool air shooting from the center of the lava rocks floating over me. And I knew that something in there loved me strongly. And there were times when people would come in and try to burn us out, so to speak, because there's that that exists. And I could feel it. I knew that it was hot, but then the eagle feathers would scream and I could feel the cool air all around me you know and I I prayed that all my brothers and sisters were feeling these things all of them I didn't know it was just a few of us you know well that's really you know to me that was like graduation like when you get your finals for each year something wonderful and beautiful presents itself to say stay on this track you're on the right track we're watching over you you know because of your family background i know that you're uh apache from texas your lineage and uh, how you got your family went to chicago i know i visited them and then your voyage to california and then this uh, introduction into the indian people's movement as i call that the activity of of American movement and and four directions and the organizational politics of the Indian peoples within Los Angeles. But also you share with that a little bit about our that spiritual journey. And that spiritual journey, which I uh, moved from San Diego up in Los Angeles, where I got to know your family in Santa Monica, and you were the family, the go-to person that witnesses all these different things, but you held strong with the defense of Leonard Peltier, the defense of and support and the caravans into the big mountain, Ward Valley, Buhaba, and all those different things which I like to get into. But when you were in Los Angeles and you're finally realizing Los Angeles is a multitude of indigenous populations the largest population of native peoples within North, within North America, outside of, let's say, Mexico City. What was your first contact with the Tongva community? Um, and how does that express itself? Talk about that for us. I had gone to Pavangna. I mean, I'd been to powwows and things like that. And Bernie Alvitri could still speak his language. He, I heard that. And to me, I've always been the kind of person, if I hear someone speak the original language from where I am standing, I will put everything in me beside that person to support whatever fight they're fighting. And because they always treated me like as if I was one of theirs, never shutting the door, I treat them as if they're mine. And that's why I support their fights and do the things I need to do to see, to raise them up. If I raise them up, I raise all of us up, you see? 
And I never did anything other than to make a space for the next engine to get in there and speak, the next woman to talk about her story, you know, because to me that was important. And I faced all kinds of jealousy, nothing. I was raised with 16 women, aunts, uncles, and sisters. I mean, you know, and it's nothing to me. It's just words, actions, but, you know, take it home with you because I'm still intact. I'm here and I love you still, you know, no matter what Indian people say to me, I still love them more than that because I know what we've all been through. You talked about the Pavumna, you talked about Bernie Alvitri, you know, the one of the organizers yeah, that, and the elders. I, I met other people that still Still yeah, other people within remnants of their languages. Yeah, other people within that particular uh, sacred site, the defending a sacred site of Pavumna. Yeah, and what makes it a sacred site? The spirits there still speak to us. You go and sleep there. There, you're going to dream direction and all kinds of things that put you in a good place. All of us. That's why we save those sacred sites. They're still alive with the ancestors that want to give to us and show us a good, a better way to be with each other. You know, there's no human that can do that. It happens spiritually. I don't care what your religion, go there and sleep there. That's what we saved it for everybody for, to have that connection. Those connections are really important. Your life was centered on that and your family, which is you have a big family, I know that. Now the... Um, Talk to us about when you mentioned the how was the climate then during the 70s and the 80s? What was the climate of all, all these movements and people? I know you helped a lot of people with sobriety, you know, an attempt to sometimes you had successes, other times you didn't. But talks about talk talk to us so the younger people can understand the climate of Los Angeles then that you can share with us, some of the situations that you witnessed? Well, it was very extremely turbulent, extremely violent, people attacking one another all over, verbally and otherwise. And, uh, you know, we just had to float to the top of that. And uh, because there was something more important to be learned here. This is the story of how we are assimilated three generations and not ever supposed to raise our voice again. And yet, through direction, we find our way back to how we support this earth, to our humble beginnings. When we first emerged, and it was just yesterday, from our little areas, you know, we were emergence people. I've never heard anybody say we crossed Siberian Street unless, I'm sorry to say, they were adopted into white families. Then I've heard Indians say that, but I say, hey, that's their reality. You know, I can't speak for that. So, but I know mine. I've been to many areas where I know life did emerge there from one end of this side of the hemisphere to the other. Now, you know that America and you know, everywhere you talk to many leaders throughout the years. And I know that your um, Michael Anderson was part of radio and you were part of Radio America and you know, always, you, 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 you did your stint, you did your time for radio. And, and we love you for that. Talk about difficult issues. And a lot of people don't talk about uh, the treatment of women within, within the movement, the treatment of Indian women. You know, a lot of discussions go about the murdered and missing 
um, indigenous women, LBGT communities within our, uh, within now, just recently in the last three years, talk about the treatment of women within the movement is some of the stuff that you can share and you witness about some of the things, not very, how would you say it? Not very kind or considerate situations. How were women treated them in organizing and as far as the movement is concerned? What is your view? Well, we weren't given uh, the right to speak. It was always the men are going to say this, the men are going to say that. And, and the only one woman I did know at that time in the 70s and 80s that spoke, you know, had her own agenda. So I didn't disqualify her, but I didn't want to be a part of that because there were things being done. You stand too close to the wrong person and you're a woman, people come looking for you. I lived on Sycamore in Santa Monica, I mean, in and Santa Monica Boulevard in Hollywood. For, for a while. And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with longtime Indigenous activist, spoonkeeper, and so much more, Helen Herrera, as part of our ongoing series, Urban Indigenous Los Angeles. And now back to the interview. And one day I had a call from Four Directions, come downtown, we're having a press conference because a, a child has been killed in, in Libya. And I thought, a child killed in Libya? we don't want any children killed anywhere. So I went. But like I said, you never know what you're signing up for. By the end of that day, I went home with my daughter and we were laying in the bedroom and we heard some people come up and say, these are Gaddafi sympathizers. And the next thing we know, they had thrown gasoline on the trees directly across the street, wrong house, and set them on fire. So my whole bedroom became red with the glow of that fire. And every, all my neighbors, we were all out there with hoses, but I knew what had happened. They'd seen me at that press conference and said, I didn't even know who Gaddafi was. All I knew was a child had died, but people will draw you in because they want to support or whatever. And you get caught up in it. That's when I became Helen Anderson because I needed to get away from that situation with my daughter alive and Michael had been begging me to marry him for 20 years at that point and I said okay let's just do this now you know because it was a chance to put space between myself and what had just occurred and what was yet to come that's when these moves took place they were survival moves you know I I said the on top of the list is me to make sure my daughter makes it through this life and so I had to shift my priorities and get out of there. There were things that happened on Big Mountain. You know, Michael was being set up. People wanted him to be set up because I guess they needed a martyr. And he had stayed behind and I had gone in with the last caravan load up to uh, the Benali and, and Catherine Smith land. And, you know, I was up there in a tent waiting for Michael to come. And uh, he was supposed to bring some firearms that uh, some of the people in Four Direction had been getting together for this fight to stop the relocation. So he was held up by that, but he made sure he had the right stuff, not broken pieces like Four Directions had given him. And he went up there. And as soon as he arrived, he was attacked verbally by the woman in the camp. Oh, blah, 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 you know, whatever garbage nonsense. 
And I realized what was going down, what was happening, because that person kept leaving every day, traveling from Big Mountain to Flagstaff to make phone calls. And I'm like, that's a long way to go, you know. But anyway, so we pulled out of there, but not till after I asked him. I said, Michael, where are these guns that these people ordered? He said, well, they're tied up under the truck. I said, get them out here now. So he dropped them down and pulled them out on the car in a small gun box. And I, I don't know where I got the strength. I lifted them up and I walked over to her van and I kicked the door open and threw the guns up in the air. And when they landed, they rocked that van. And I left, you know, I'm done here. This is my work. And now you can't stop them on the road. No one can stop them with these guns and put them in prison. But it was always, you know, that's just a little taste of what we had in our survival, you know, but um, you do so what you, you have to do. So Helen, you understood that you're being set up. Oh yeah, I saw it coming from way back. Yeah, and that, how did um, you feel about, you said about treatment of women to express themselves, how did that occur and was it a long, a long going process? And were you, where, where did you finally speak out? Because you're, when I got to know you, you were very much of a strong woman within Los Angeles, had focused within your delivery of your presentations. And so what did that change in where you had to express yourself and where a lot of the men could not do that? Well, traveling and cooking, I learned to meet all the women at the forefront of many of the movements that we know about. And so I got my my spirit, my strength from them because they would sit me down and say, look, we have dreams about you. We have dreams that you're a young grandma and more young grandmas are coming behind you. And I thought, oh my God, I was terrified to speak. I didn't mind speaking to a small crowd, but a big crowd, no, I, I didn't think I could do it. And I would hold on to the walls before I would be pulled out onto the stage. Then I'd get there and I'd just weep because it was so painful to see what we had become, you know, we couldn't even find our voice when we finally had a platform for three or five minutes. That's all most people were willing to give us then. So I realized we'd have to fight, fight for that platform. Let's take these stories and make people want to hear them, want to know this music and how it, it connects to these historical things that have happened to us ongoing, ongoing, you know, and so that's, that's what I did. I tried to focus on that and tried to find my, my own voice because I needed to, to explain to the people coming in. I mean, when we had our conference that day, LA blew up because of Rodney King. There was smoke. The, the Native people were saying, oh my God, we saw all those fires. We said, what are we doing coming to LA? You guys got to come home with us. And we're like, no, no you know this is it so that was the day when we had our conference at east la college but you know as far as the women finding their voice i mean and, and another thing this habit both men and women have of talking about each other when our children are around we do them a great disservice because all of us are brought here with a gift 
And if we close our mind off based on something silly or nonsense, then we we strip ourselves of that gift, you know? So, and I know more than anything because no matter where I lived, I lived in Hollywood 16 years, my bushes would be teeming in the morning. What's going on here? Is this an Indian house? And I'm like, yeah. I'm big. I told my daughter, is there a feather on my head or something? How do people know? And they would come and crash with their children or their families. I tell them, wake up my daughter, let them shower, give them some food. I put food on the stove and then let them go. So my house was always like a home for people. And sometimes I'd get people who were very alcoholic. And I would tell them, I'm sorry, I don't drink. I don't know how to handle this. But I know the Eagle Lodge and other groups in town that I've met the people and said hello to them, you know, in the passing or I cook and feed them. And, and let me call them and they would help. So we got a few good, straight, clear-minded Indians out of that that worked for us for a while, you know, and did some good things. They became honorable. I don't hold anybody against what their past has been. We don't have that right. I'm no God, nothing like that. The past is the past. We move forward. Let's move forward. And when people come to tell us this story, that story about each other, I tell them, if that person wants me to know, they will tell me. So please stop. I need to think of this other thing here. Don't waste my time. You know, and I've heard men say things about the women. We don't have a right to talk. Who do we think we are and this and that? And I'm like, it doesn't matter who we think we are because it's unfolding before you who we are. And we didn't ask to be called queens or anything like that. We just said, give us a minute, give us a voice. Let me cook for you, I'll feed you. You won't starve, you know? We're speaking with Helen Herrero's activist cook, as you describe yourself. And I witness you in the kitchen feeding people feeding hungry people, feeding people that were in need, you know, and before the question came up just, just recently about us healing within the Native community, you were doing that before that subject was even introduced within the public arena. And what words do you want to say to our young people at this point in time? I want you to understand one thing, that... The beginning of listening to your elders about where they've been, how they grew up and where that territory is, is the beginning of establishing native title again, native title. Once we have those stories in native title, we can go for our youth that are in attorney skills at helping us get the land back, hand that information over to the attorney. Once the attorneys get it, you hand it back over to, to uh, the state and the people in charge. Get those uh, people to commit to an apology because the apology kicks the door open on resources. People are more apt and more prone to help us if they have an understanding on how they and their last few generations are connected to this. So it's the stories, it's the native table, uh, uh, native title, it's our cartologists, our own that can 
redraw the native title. We know the native title has gotten smaller, but maybe not so once we hear the stories, you know, and then say, hey, here's our request. Here's our request. Give us, you got 100 acres, give us five. We'll establish a community center. We don't have any acreage, give us some money so we can build our own. We have a little bit of land, we can build our own. We can get direction from people who know how it is to work that mud with, with the uh, smoke and ashes of the prayers and create a solid, I saw it in Oklahoma, a solid giant floor that looks like it's made of adobe, but so shiny, I walked on it, you know? I mean, there are ways to get your, our grounding back and, and ways to do it good. The moment of silence is over. And that was Marcus Lopez speaking with Helen Herrera as part of our ongoing series, Urban Indigenous Los Angeles. That concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to our guests, Dolores Larson and Helen Herrera. A special thank you to our musical guests, Aragon Star, Koopa Aina, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studio at Burnt Swamp Studios in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. Silence is over. And for the innocent, you can't justify why your freedom manifests on their graves. And the blood never comes clean from the guilty minds, nor the hands that hold the chains. is over.